Welcome to Poverty Unpacked, the podcast series in which we discuss the hidden sides of poverty. In conversation with others, we explore how poverty affects the mind, relationships, emotions and society as a whole, and what can be done to change it. In this episode, we will be exploring the issue of digital exclusion. We have all grown accustomed to doing many things online, especially in the past year with the COVID pandemic. Shopping, learning, meeting with friends, many of us have moved to doing these things on our phones, computers or tablets. But the increased use of technology is not new. Social services have long made the move to being digitized, matching job seekers with vacant positions, deciding on eligibility for income assistance or detecting welfare fraud. Computers have taken over many of these tasks. Today we discuss what drives this shift and the risk that this holds, especially for people in poverty. I am joined by Christian van Veen, Director of the Digital Welfare State and Human Rights Project at the New York University School of Law, and by my colleague Becky Faith, Research Fellow and Leader of the Digital and Technology Cluster at the Institute of Development Studies. Both have a wealth of experience in researching the impact of digital technology on marginalized communities around the world. Becky and Christian, thank you very much for making the time today to join the podcast. And to kick off the conversation, can you talk a little bit about the ways in which technology or digital tools are used in policies that either aim to tackle poverty or that are targeted to people in poverty, such as social protection or welfare or other policies? Thanks. Uh, thanks so much. And thanks for the uh, invitation, Katie. I think that's a very, very big question. And what I often do when I get posed that question is to emphasize that the use of technology, including digital technology uh, within social protection programs, for instance, is not a recent phenomenon per se. And I think it's important to emphasize that because we uh, often tend to discuss this as if it started yesterday. And obviously, uh, there's a much longer history to it. Uh, in the United States, where I'm currently based, Social Security Administration has been relying on computers, for instance, to store information about beneficiaries since uh, after the Second World War. If you talk about other forms of technology, for instance, fingerprinting, a lot of African states under colonial rule have experiences with fingerprint archives, for instance, uh, since the early 20th century. So I think it's important to sort of contextualize that question. I think the reason we're talking about this now much more often is in part because after the 1990s, you see sort of a rapid acceleration of the use of digital technologies within government. Uh, originally, a lot of that was hidden, I think. So governments increasingly uh, sort of digitized their own databases. You got government websites all of a sudden, which were originally still much more about information sharing, much more than, uh, than anything else. And then more recently, because of innovations in, uh, in, in digital technologies, you see that governments are much more broadly within their social protection systems looking at how they can digitize. And there you see very far-reaching automation being one part of it. So internally, governments are getting better and better at automating their decision-making systems. So, for instance, that affects uh, eligibility decisions within, uh, within social protection uh, systems. And increasingly, the interaction with citizens is digitalized. 
So applying for benefits, uh, maintaining your benefit is increasingly something you do online. I think there are examples of that from around the world, from, from the UK, where the whole benefit system has been digitalized, you know, apply for benefits online to places like India, where you can no longer get food ration without a digital identification. So it's, it's a broad question that therefore triggered quite a broad answer. That's a really good starting point. Becky, would you like to add a few examples or ways in which these tools are used? Well, just to say that I think it's worth reflecting that since COVID, all of these processes have been rapidly amplified. So, for example, in the UK, where I've been doing research funded through the ESRC, uh, Digital Futures at Work Research Centre at the University of Sussex, we saw how when the country went into lockdown last March, existing modes of accessing government services, accessing municipal services, were shut down, uh, municipalities were forced to just provide a kind of bare bones service. All of those services and places, community uh, centres and libraries where disconnected people used to go and access digital services were shut down. So there's been this rapid uh, moving of services online during digitisation that's only kind of amplified existing processes and I'm sure as we'll go on to discuss, arguably amplified existing inequalities as well. If I may respond to that, Becky, because that's a very interesting point that you bring up about COVID being a, a game changer. I think it has also shown that some governments are more advanced here than others. And the governments that are more advanced have really sort of benefited from the COVID moment of sort of showing their population how, how relevant their early in investments have been. And so I think in a country like the UK, where there's been a lot of criticism, for instance, on the universal credit system, which is fully uh, digitalized, still the fact that people could apply for benefits online was so much of an advantage compared to states in the US where people actually had to line up in the middle of the COVID crisis to get a paper form to apply for, let's say, unemployment benefits. And so I, I fully agree with Becky that COVID has been a game changer. And so, uh, Becky, you, you referred to some of the inequalities or the exclusion that might result from it. But before we get to that and, and maybe picking up on some of the trends that we saw with COVID, what are some of the benefits of the use of these technologies and these digital tools that have caused such a rapid increase in their use since since the 90s, like you said, Christian? I think the main benefit is that it's cheaper. It's more efficient. So as a, as a service provider, you're saving a lot of money at all different kinds of levels, not just by having people replacing face-to-face -face services with uh, automated services, you're saving on kind of person power. But in automating decision making as well, you're taking it, it's like the broader scale automation that we're seeing in, in, in sectors across the economy. So it's a, a money saver. It can provide a greater transparency and information flows, although that isn't the experience of a lot of people using the universal credit system in the UK. So I'd say, as I work in a, an international development context, we often see those arguments for digitization of, of services and development context being about greater efficiency and, and money saving. Yeah, I fully agree that saving money is probably the main rationale for, for governments, obviously. And that's why the whole debate about digitalization is often caught up in debates about austerity and budget cuts. And that also underlines immediately that these are not neutral developments, right? They're uh, caught up in bigger political debates on the role of the state and uh, how expensive government uh, can and should be. 
But yes, I think governments, in addition to often sort of underlining the money-saving aspect, in many of the digital government strategies, you'll read at the top of the, of the document that increasingly making it easier for users and, and citizens to uh, access government services is another big rationale behind these developments. I think that is true in theory. That is a real benefit. Imagine you're, uh, you're a single mom and you have the ability now, instead of spending part of your working day going to a benefit office, you can now do a lot of this stuff online. That's a huge efficiency from your individual perspective too. But I think ease of use is the complicated benefit because that is often um, a benefit that is experienced very unequally across a, a population. So you see for, for middle-class individuals, that often holds true, but it's very different if you're, let's say, in the bottom 20% of the income division. For those groups, often digitalization means the exact opposite, increased complexity. And so that benefit is very, is very contextual and very much dependent on who you are. And that's a nice segue into the next question, which is really what both of you work on mostly issues to do with exclusion or inequalities that get introduced or reinforced through the use of these tools and technologies. Becky, from your work, what are some of the main headline messages here around issues to do with the use of digital technologies? One of the most striking things that we found in our research over the last year is the persistence of digital exclusion in a wealthy country like the UK. And I should add that uh, my colleague Kevin Hernandez has also been doing work in New York as well, where we're seeing similar patterns. So we think in the UK, there's this assumption that everyone's got a smartphone, everybody's online, but actually data from the Lloyds Bank digital survey shows that 16% of the UK population, that's 9 million people, can't use the internet and use their devices by themselves. So that's a lot of people. There's a very, very persistent levels of digital exclusion. And that exclusion increases, obviously, for those on lower incomes, but also for disabled members of the community. Typically, we think of older people as being digitally excluded, but actually one of the interesting things that we're finding in our research is that that also applies to people in their 50s. So we're interviewing people in their 50s who've lost their jobs during COVID and now forced to apply for jobs online, even kind of jobs like stacking shelves in the supermarket, you have to apply for online using quite complex job sites. And because they haven't gone through that process of using digital technologies in their working life, like a lot of younger people will, they're really, really struggling. So I think one, that's one of the most striking things that is the, just the persistence of digital exclusion and how much that's related to other axes of inequality. And one thing I would add as well is that although the UK is meant to be a kind of leader in the digitisation of universal credit, that doesn't make it a really simple system. I've got one very uh, a striking quote from a, a kind of welfare advisor in the UK who said that Digitization is, is actually a kind of very complex system beyond universal credit of all different kinds of um, entitlements. And for people who are already struggling, say, with mental health or with some kind of learning difficulty or, or some kind of uh, anxiety or, or homelessness or any issue like that, this kind of complex domain of uh, welfare with a digital layer on top is really, really challenging and create and is we would argue is creating new kinds of inequalities and preventing people from being able to access their entitlements.
just to build on what Becky just said, I think there's a tendency in the digital exclusion debate still to focus on hardware issues, right? So to say, okay, some people, let's say in rural Wales, for instance, uh, they still don't have a reliable internet connection or they don't have a laptop at home as richer people often do. And so the real game changer would be, for instance, that for everyone to have broadband internet access or for everyone to have a, a laptop. And while that would certainly, certainly be an improvement, I'm not denying that. I think uh, what Becky was also hinting at just now is that digitalization is often a systems change. It's not merely adding a little bit of digital on top of something existing. It's often that the way that a system operates changes quite fundamentally. So in the UK, the third sector, so welfare rights advisors, et cetera, usually have a certain role to play in the whole process of getting benefits, maintaining benefits. What you see with universal credit being an online system where you maintain your relationship with the state digitally via platform, what's the role for welfare rights advisor then, right? Like how do they get access to the information that the state holds on you? How can they best advise you? There's a tendency to think, okay, this is merely about getting a computer and then the problems are fixed, but this is about so many other things within the system that change. That also leads to a lot of exclusion. Uh, exclusion caused by the fact that you have less access to, uh, to the same sort of welfare rights advice that you used to uh, used to have. We're doing research now in Uganda, which is, I think, also relevant here about a digital ID system. On the technical side, it's quite simple. You don't need to bring a laptop or you don't need to apply for the digital ID online. It's all physical. You have these mass registration drives where people get fingerprinted and they get included in, uh, in the system. The problem is more that once that system is in place, it becomes the main entryway to government services. And then if anything goes wrong in terms of your digital ID, for instance, your birth date is wrong, or you lose your digital ID card, or you die, the ways in which the system then deals with those problems is often inefficient because these are completely new systems that are often built with much less money than the leg legacy system. And so often problems like that are not discounted in the, in the overall cost and in the overall design of these programs. And so we see a lot of problems being as simple as, I've lost my digital ID card, I can no longer get access to a hospital, but now I have to travel 50 miles to go to this one office where you can renew your digital ID. We should, you know, look beyond the digital also to what the exclusionary problems are around digital social protection system. And this raises all kinds of questions about our relationships as citizens with the state. So these ideas of kind of universalism and egalitarianism, once these entitlements are sort of channeled through these commercially provided technological infrastructures, your voice and your sense of government's responsibility to be downwardly accountable to you it completely kind of reconfigures that relationship. And what we're seeing in the UK context and my colleague Kevin saw in the US context is this massive burden being put onto intermediary organisations who weren't necessarily digital inclusion organisations who were kind of welfare support organisations or organisations that help with job seeking, really, really struggling. So there was a report by the Administrative Justice Council in the UK where they interviewed frontline providers of welfare assistance and over a third of them actually couldn't help their clients with the digital services that they needed help with. And they're really, really struggling. And would you say that there is enough attention or even awareness of these issues of, of digital exclusion on behalf of governments? Are they aware or is there maybe a willful 
overlooking or you know, <laughs> refusal to engage with the issues. I've seen a real shift in the UK, a downward shift in terms of a policy attention being paid to digital exclusion. There was money available, there was a political commitment to fund digital exclusion work. And now this last kind of 16% of people who can't get online, who are struggling financially to get to pay for data, pay for broadband, it's seen as a kind of politically intractable problem. It's not very kind of uh, sexy in policy terms, if you will. I think it's not seen as a politically attractive issue. Yeah, I would agree with that, especially in the early phases of a digital government program. There's A, a lot more money available, generally speaking, for the program, and B, political actors have to justify that no one gets hurt in the process, no one get, gets excluded. And so in the initial phases, there's often more attention for exclusionary issues. Then over time, that interest fades, as, as Becky said, and it's no longer considered sort of sexy to address it. It's also, you know, th there's a lot of uh, nuts and bolts work involved then, right? It's definitely not something that uh, has an easy fix. Good luck with educating that 16% or so, uh, being very comfortable in a digital environment. That's not something you can, uh, you can resolve with a one-hour course. This is not just a UK problem. You see that in many other places as well. I just talked about digital ID. And what you see is there's a lot of initial funding available from Western donors and from the World Bank and from others for countries to, you know, roll out a digital ID system. So there's a mass registration drive. There's a mass media campaign. Tablets are provided for uh, authentication machines, for fingerprinting. But then the moment that the initial registration drive ends, that's when the real hard work starts. I mean, you constantly need to update your population register, for instance. And again, that's the nuts and bolts work. Make sure that people who die get registered. Make sure that babies that are born get registered. And that's A, not sexy, B, there's no funding for it, and governments tend to lose interest after a year or two. I think that's where the real, real issues lie. And just to add on that, what I've seen in our work here is that what really works is patient, dedicated people, for example, what they call digital champions, provided by organisations like Citizens Online that I've been partnering with here, some paid for, some voluntary, who just turn up every week and provide that of well, having to do remote support now the same people who work in, often in libraries and in community centers they'll be sitting there and they'll be helping people keep their, their sort of job journals updated and providing that and again it's that maintenance process it's and especially against the backdrop of years of years of austerity and years of cuts to municipal services yeah it's not something that's heavily invested in and it's also often provided by a kind of patchwork of the voluntary sector as well, mutual aid groups, church groups play an important role here. I think in many cases, digitalization is the perfect backdrop for cutting off some people from government aid, but doing it in a very intransparent way. I mean, governments over a long history of the welfare state have, of course, used administrative rules and bureaucracy to make it harder to get access to benefits. And that's just sort of a rationing function. Governments want to make it hard so that not everyone who has a right to social protection actually gets it related to budget cuts, but also related to just more ideological reasons, like making sure that only the really deserving get access to social protection. 
you see with the introduction of digital technologies, you add a layer of complexity. And I think there is, although governments will never sort of fully admit that, clearly an intention to do the same thing. But now in a setting where it's much less clear that that is actually happening, right? Like, so if you change the eligibility rules or if you add paper forms, it's quite obvious what you're doing. With digital technologies, it's still sort of sold under this uh, label of efficiency and ease of use, et cetera. And so governments get away with a lot more, I could say, than, than previously. Yeah, I just wanted to, I thought it's really interesting that the Swiss just voted against introducing some kind of digital ID on the grounds of privacy, basically. Mm -hmm. One of the richest countries in the world where people said, actually, no, we, we don't want this intrusion. And yet this is something that's incredibly popular, development donors. I think World Bank, for instance, in the South, constantly refers to European examples like Estonia as a good practice of digital government. And then they sell that to, for instance, African governments of this is the wave of future. But actually, if you look at digital ID, not just Switzerland, but the UK rejected that quite a while ago. So it's a false narrative to say that, that the digital is necessarily more modern or better. It's much more nuanced than that. And uh, a lot of that selling of Western examples is, is, used, in the, is used in the South. Well, that leads into also my next question, which is about where does this leave us and where next? There's a persistent exclusion that you mentioned, Becky, in the UK and, and if you will, many high income countries. But then there's also this drive towards digitization in many lower middle income countries. And here I speak from the work that we've done recently on social protection in urban areas in, in Nigeria, in Peru, in Madagascar and in many of these places, the use of digital tools, social registry, etc., making payments digitally is widely used and was also really promoted to get money out quickly to people who quote unquote deserve it. And in the work that we did, we found very little critical reflection on whether these tools were actually able to reach those who really need it and those who are most disadvantaged. And also what it means for the systems, like you mentioned, Christian, is not just about the hardware or, or now needing a mobile phone. It's also about an entirely different way of engaging with the state and the social protection providers. And there seems to be very little critical discussion within lower middle income countries where this is rolled out at rapid speed, especially now with COVID. So, yeah, the question to you, where, where does it leave us? What, how do we engage to make sure that this stays on the agenda or goes towards the top of the agenda, that money is available, etc.? What's happening in, in low and middle income countries, and I have most experience with digital ID systems, I think is that the push towards those systems is very well funded, very well organized. It's Western donors, it's big foundations, and it's also a lot of actors within the private sector, credit card companies, financial sector, who all have an interest and a stake in pushing Southern governments on introducing these systems for a variety of uh, reasons. On the other hand, the counter movement is, is at a great disadvantage in terms of money, in terms of resources, in terms of technological know-how. And so uh, if you talk specifically about the digital ID debate in, in Africa, it's an unfair game, right? Like the odds are stacked against those who might have a more critical perspective. I mean, we could talk a lot about a lot of other things that need to happen for this to improve, but I think that's a very important aspect of it. I just agree wholeheartedly with everything Christian just said. And I think one of the most important roles for us 
as academics and policy-focused researchers is to be engaging in these debates and drawing attention to exactly those asymmetries in power and voice. There's very strong economic private sector interests behind them. But did anybody ever ask the beneficiaries whether they wanted a digitised system or were they quite happy? And it's those kind of questions of like, do you actually want it? Do you understand the criteria by which these uh, this money is being awarded to you? Do you understand that the, the data that's being collected on you and the, the, those asymmetries, those kind of really fundamental questions about the state's accountability to us as citizens and about power. It's really, really, really important to ask them. Just to briefly follow up on that, I see overlap. When we visited the UK on the mandate of the Special Rapporteur on Extreme Poverty and Human Rights in, uh, in 2018, one of the things we noticed that there's sort of a, a divide in, uh, on the one hand, welfare rights and poverty organizations and human rights organizations and digital rights organizations. That I see in Africa as well, where you have groups who are focusing on social protection, on poverty, but who don't really feel comfortable getting involved in the debates on digital rights, for instance. The difference, I think, is that at least in the UK, you have a pretty vibrant civil society and an open democratic system. Then in Africa, for instance, a lot of the debates on social protection are highly technocratic. And if social protection specialists are involved in that, there's not yet that counterpart who deals with social protection and digital rights, for instance, or social protection and, and human rights. So I think while there are similarities, the debates in the South are often at a disadvantage because there's not nearly as much sort of critical pushback as there would be a country like the, like the UK. And of course, that's structural, that you're not going to solve that overnight or at all. So that makes it much more complicated even and much more dangerous than doing this in the UK. Right. So lots, lots of challenges for the future and also a big conversation that I'm sure we could continue for uh, quite some time more. But we have almost reached the time that we have. Before we close the conversation, I'd like to ask you both if you have any final comments or things that you'd like to raise that you think the listeners should know about. I have sort of two issues in the UK and the US context. I think it's really important to be paying attention to these persistent digital divides, even though it seemed, like I said, as a kind of an intractable problem and looking at the vital importance of preserving some form of face-to-face -face services and of arguments for kind of um, state provision to address these digital divides. And then in the, in the kind of global context, I think it's an argument for continued kind of robust research on, the, on these issues, especially research which is bridging those gaps between the, the welfare and the human rights issues that sometimes they're seen as like, oh, well, it's irreconcilable. You can't have kind of effective targeting and preserve people's digital privacy. But wh why shouldn't you? Why can't you have people's kind of right to anonymity and right to digital privacy and right to be forgotten? Th these rights should be universal. And I think greater conversations may be facilitated by researchers like ourselves between welfare people and human rights people, I think is absolutely vital. Let me just say that I fully agree with that. And especially sort of this push for the use of digital technologies by governments in the social protection sphere in the global south. I think is one of the most terrifying developments that I've seen in a while. And I think we're really in a, in a moment where we should realize what the incredible dangers are of that, of that development. And given the magnitude of the problems that could arise, and given the fact that there's so many proponents and so few critical voices, 
I think those who are on the critical side need to join hands and need to join forces as much as they can. So that's why a debate like this is so is so helpful, but also it's sort of what Becky said, stimulating human rights organizations, uh, digital rights organizations, welfare rights organizations, social protection experts to work together on this because we're really at a disadvantage organizationally in terms of resources, but we're really heading in the wrong direction here. And um, there's very little time, I think, to put a stop to it or to, to bring it towards a more healthier and sustainable model. Thank you, both of you, for your insights. This reality check for the call to arms, really, for people to join hands and make people aware of the dangers or at least the risks, as you both highlighted. Thank you both very much. I'm sure this will be an incredibly useful episode to the listeners and hopefully will be the start of more debate. Thanks, Katie. Thank you. Thank you for listening. You can find more information about this episode on our website, poverty-unpacked.org. If you'd like to stay updated about our new episodes, please follow us wherever you get your podcasts or find us on Twitter or Instagram. We hope you'll join us again next time.